like geography, for example, such as where the Messiah would be born. Micah 5.2 tells us it will be in Bethlehem. And it stretches all the way to clear illustrations of what the Messiah would do, such as the suffering servant song that we just heard during our service of worship tonight. All of those aspects of ministry that he would perform in Isaiah chapter 53, speaking about the cross. Some of these prophecies, however, are not communicating about literal details. Instead, some of these prophecies are using vibrant metaphors to present a picture of the power and the purpose of the king who came to save his people. For example, Psalm 132, verse 17 through 18 says, as one of the lesser-known messianic prophecies, it says, There I will make a horn sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. This is certainly a lesser-known messianic prophecy. Here you see, in a brilliant way, a prophecy that is being not only figurative but also literal, communicating a single message, one of supreme authority and worthiness of the Messiah. According to this passage, the coming Messiah was going to wear a crown that would shine. In some form or another, we are told that this crown is going to radiate with a loud message to the whole world. This poem here in Psalm 132, well, we know that it's using something called antithetical parallelism. That's just a fancy way of telling us what kind of poetry this is. But it helps us to identify the purpose of this crown. This word for the crown and its shining is being contrasted with the shame that is going to be experienced by the enemies of the Messiah. In other words, this crown, according to Psalm 132, is designed to bring the Messiah honor and glory and praise and adoration. And that's why it might be so surprising when you get to the crucifixion of Jesus and you read these words. Please follow along as I read aloud from Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 11. <clears throat> the word of the Lord reads, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered Pilate, uh, gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. 
So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing over his word. Our Father God, we thank you for sending Jesus Christ, your Son, to endure such hostility as this for his people. Father God, we pray asking you tonight that every single person in this room who knows you, who has been purchased by the blood of Christ, who has had their sins forgiven, will rejoice in the sight of the cross, that our hearts will be overjoyed and overflowing, regardless of circumstantial evidence in our life that might say life is difficult. Lord, I pray that tonight we would see God is good at the cross. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who does not yet know you, regardless of the reasons that they have come tonight, whether they are self-deceived, assuming themselves to be in the kingdom, yet not knowing Christ in a genuine way, or here reluctantly or defiantly, or here because they have been invited. Father God, we ask that for any who do not know you that are in this room today, in the hearing of this word, we ask, Lord, Father, that you would change them tonight, that you would radically open their eyes to who Christ is, that they might see clearly what the cross is about and that they might be saved. Lord, we pray that all of us in this room would leave differently than we came in. Hearts renewed, set upon Christ, stayed on the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When a king or a queen is being established as the official ruler of their people, there's a special ceremony that is held called a coronation. That word, coronation, literally means crowning. It's a coronation, it's that place where a person will first be accepted as the official monarch of their entire kingdom, and it's at that point that the crown will first be placed upon their brow. Moments ago, we saw the Roman soldiers perform a mock coronation for Jesus. What we're going to do tonight is consider that crown, the crown of thorns, in seven different ways. Like a precious stone, what we are going to do is see the way the light shines differently on it, depending upon what angle you look. We we are going to see the multifaceted glory that is revealed in this one small aspect of the crucifixion of the Son of God. And in doing so, I want you to behold our King. First, we're going to see the crown of thorns as it was intended by the Romans, to be a crown of suffering. According to Bible scholar Tristram Smith, The region of Jerusalem is filled with a plant called nebg. It's one of those words that I don't really know how to pronounce. In English, it is the letter N-E-B-K. B-K. That doesn't happen too often in our language. N-E-B-K, nebg. This plant is very common. It is all over the Jerusalem region. And it is probably this plant that was selected to serve as the crown of thorns. It's a plant with thorns that range from a half-inch to an inch long. 
These thorns are known to produce immense irritation in skin, not only because their incredible sharpness and hardness, but also because of the chemical makeup that they have, making them uniquely painful to the human nerve system. You see, the Romans, they were skilled warriors. They were skilled at torturing people. The cross is a tool of immense suffering. However, this is not part of their typical form of crucifixion. This appears to be nothing more than an afterthought. This appears to be the product of one soldier attempting to one-up another as he sees these branches, as he sees these thorns, and he wants to find some way to prove that he is funny to his friends. So he plucks a branch from a thorn bush, and he wraps it into a circlet, and he places it there on Jesus' head. When that crown was placed onto the head of the Lord, it was likely pressed firmly into place to ensure that it did not fall off. How do I know that? Because as you continue reading, you see that those same soldiers beat Jesus Christ in the face many times. Yet later, when he is marched back out before the Jews, that crown of thorns remained on his head. It must have been placed there securely. To make matters even worse, every place where those thorns pierced his skin, Jesus' head would begin to swell. This would result in every thorn piercing deeper and deeper as gradually increased throughout the day. In other words, the agony of the crown was one that never calmed. It would continue to escalate in level of physical torment until Jesus breathed his very last breath and said, it is finished. After a matter of hours, his head would have swollen to a point of being totally unrecognizable. This probably is part of the reason why Isaiah 52.14 says, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. In other words, this physical abuse that Jesus endured resulted in him no longer even looking human. The crown of thorns was a crown of suffering. Behold your king. Now let's turn the angle and consider the crown as a crown of shame. Have you ever experienced something like this? You're with a group of people and you fall down. And maybe these are people that you respect. Maybe they're people that you know. Maybe they are not. But regardless, you fall down. You, you maybe slip on the stairs or on an icy patch of the parking lot. Or maybe you trip over your own feet. And then when you hit the ground, you feel pain pulsing through your body, through your newly scraped elbow, or that knot on your head, or that bruised tailbone. But then you hear it. Those people that you are with, instead of rushing to help you, they are laughing at your pain. Now, it's a common human experience to feel more deep and lasting pain from the derision of the people around you than from the physical pain inflicted from an event like that. The crown of thorns was part of a series of gestures made by the Romans to mock Jesus. The reed that was placed in his hand was supposed to look like a scepter. The robe that was placed over his back was designed to imitate a royal robe. And the crown that was placed on his head was a distorted and perverse image of authority. This one single object, this one object, the crown of thorns, this is the only one of those objects that made it all the way out of the guardhouse. John 19 tells us that Jesus wore that crown when Pilate presented Jesus to the crowds, and as far as we can tell, he would continue to wear that crown as a symbol of shame until he breathed his last. From the Roman soldier's perspective, the crown of thorns was not primarily designed to harm Jesus' body but to break his spirit. 
They were attempting to humiliate him to the point of mental collapse. They wanted to send a message to everyone, especially to Jesus himself, that this is what is going to happen if you claim to be the king. The crown of thorns was an elaborate and thorough effort to bring maximum shame to Jesus. It was a crown of shame. Behold your king. But let's once again turn the angle and see the crown of thorns in a different light. Not only was it a crown of suffering and of shame, it was also a crown of great irony. Governments wield power, and by nature of their position, kings have authority. The more power someone has, the less you want to mess with them. There's a reason why antelope will move away from lions when they see them on the savanna. There is a reason why drivers will tap their brakes when they see a police car. There is a reason why even the greatest surfers in the world will not get in the water during a typhoon. And there is a reason why people do not simply walk up to a king and mock him to his face or physically attack him. By making this crown of thorns, the soldiers were acting as though Jesus did not have any real authority of any kind. They made it clear that they viewed him as nothing more than some kind of a backwater peasant with aspirations of royalty and delusions of grandeur. They did not believe he was truly a king. How ironic is it that even while they were beating him, Jesus was the one who kept them in existence. The soldiers, their tools of torture, the thorns in that crown, Jesus was upholding all of them by the word of his power. There were only a handful of soldiers standing against Jesus in that room. It says it was a battalion of men. Well, that is hardly a fair fight. Even if all the armies of all of history were to gather together in battle against this one man, they would have no chance. That is, they would have no chance if he chose to fight. This same Jesus is described as holding the universe in the span of his hand in Isaiah chapter 40. Every galaxy in all of creation within the span of his hand he is described as breathing out the stars in Psalm 33. How ironic is it that the true king of the universe stands before his own creation, silently taking shot after shot after shot. Consider how clearly this displays his patience. Consider how clearly this displays his long-suffering. Think of the commitment that Jesus must have had towards saving sinners, that he would be willing to accept that kind of treatment. Behold your king. The next angle that I want you to see is that the crown was a symbol of victory. Throughout history, many wars have been fought over who would wear a crown. One of the clearest symbolic gestures of victory that is ever made is when somebody will usurp a ruler and then take that king's crown and place it on themselves. There's a number of examples of that in the Bible, but I'm going to just show you one. And for the sake of Brevity and simplicity, I'm going to show you an example from 1 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. It is by far the most concise example of somebody taking a crown through victory. Here's what it reads. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, Joab led out the army and ravaged the country of the Ammonites and came and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem, and Joab struck down Rabbah and overthrew it. And David took the crown of their king from his head. He found that it weighed a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head, and he brought out the spoil of the city a very great amount. A crown represents authority through victory. 
the Roman and the Jews, they would have looked at the crown of thorns and they would have seen that as a symbol of defeat. In fact, Satan himself and his armies likewise were probably looking at this moment with twisted delight, seeing what they saw on Christ's head and viewing that as some kind of a failure of the Messiah. Little did they know or understand that it was through the cross that Jesus would become preeminent. They did not understand that it was by his death that Jesus would win people for himself and set up his kingdom. Although it was their intention to belittle a man, they viewed him as nothing more than a forgettable criminal. The symbolism of the crown could not be more glorious. It was through his suffering, through his shame, and through his death that Jesus Christ was lifted high. Or as Philippians chapter 2, verses 8-11 through 11 puts it, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The crown is a crown of victory. Behold your king. The crown of thorns is also to be understood as a crown of fulfillment. If you will just rewind the tape all the way back to the very first man and woman, you will remember that they were the cause of sin entering into the world. It was through Adam and Eve that the curse of death was brought into this planet. But that curse that was laid out on mankind was not limited just to death. Consider part of the curse that God laid out in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 18. It reads, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Thorns were not part of God's original creation. God had made a world that was specifically and especially designed for human pleasure. But because of sin, God cursed the ground, resulting in plants producing repellents specifically designed to remove and harm mankind. Not only did the sin in the soldier's heart cause him to craft that crown of thorns, the curse of sin itself caused those thorns to grow. When God was speaking that curse to Adam, he knew that very day, that many years later, Jesus Christ would take that curse upon himself. And those thorns that he promised would come would be placed on Jesus' brow. The picture of the crown of thorns is designed to be a picture of substitution. It is a picture of Jesus taking the weight of our curse on himself. The thorns are a symbolic representation of Jesus receiving in himself the punishment that was given for sin. Not only did Jesus take the crown of thorns, just hours later, he became a substitute for the curse of death itself. As Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The crown of thorns is a picture of substitutionary atonement. It is a crown of fulfillment. Jesus in your place. God provides what God demands. Behold your king. The sixth angle through which we will examine the crown is that it is to be seen as a crown of authority. So far, 
It's very possible that you've been listening to my sermon and thinking to yourself, yeah, all of that's great. It's very poetic. Maybe you think that it's a nice story. Maybe you even think it's history. But you might be asking the question, what in the world does that have to do with me? Perhaps you're viewing the cross of Christ as nothing more than some kind of historical event at worst. Perhaps you're viewing the cross of Christ and his resurrection as nothing more than a religious myth. Well, nothing could be farther from the truth. Jesus came not only to be the suffering servant, he also came to be king. The universe is not a democracy. Jesus does not have to earn your vote. He is not wringing his hands just hoping you're going to choose him. Jesus is your king. He is king whether you recognize him or not. The crown that he wore at the cross was a symbolic representation of his kingly authority. There is no sense in which you or I belong to ourselves. You are not in charge. Jesus is your king. He is your authority, and your knee will bow to him. The only question remains, will your knee bow to him in this life or at the judgment? In Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 10, we read about crowns and how they will function in eternity. It reads, The twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now, I'm not going to claim to know all of the answers regarding the nature of these 24 elders, but what I can say with confidence is that these elders are more high-ranking in heaven than any of us. And their response to seeing Jesus is to take their own crowns and to throw them away from themselves, to get them as far away from themselves and as close to Christ as possible, declaring, this does not belong to me, this belongs to you. Whatever power and authority or perceived independence you gain in this life, it is all going to be given to Jesus. There is no aspect of your kingdom that will remain in death. No matter how masterfully you build a life for yourself, you will one day have to stand before the throne of God. And there, you will have no power. There, you will have no authority. There, you will have no bargaining chip with God. Although the crown of thorns was a crown designed to mock the authority of Jesus, it became exactly the opposite. It became what the psalmist foretold in Psalm 132. It became a display of glory and of power and authority. And this is true because death was not able to hold Jesus in the grave. Now I apologize, but I'm going to dip my toes into Easter Sunday because every day is resurrection day for the believer. I am going to tell you the good news that though he died, he did not remain in that grave. He rose and he is alive today, ruling as king. He is king of kings and he is presently, currently, actively Lord of lords. The crown is a crown of authority. And if you are not a Christian, I, I want to thank you for joining us tonight. I call upon you, however, to behold him, your king, your king, your king, the king that rules over you, whether you recognize it or not. Behold him, your king. Behold him in this life as king. Do not delay. Call on him for forgiveness. Call on him for salvation. Turn to him for life because our God is good and kind and he came, Jesus came for the purpose of saving sinners like you and me. Call on him because he gives freely. The final angle through which we will examine the crown of thorns is to see it as a crown of foreshadowing. 
The crown of thorns is not the last crown that Jesus is going to wear. The crown of thorns was temporary. It lasted at the longest until he was in the tomb laid there by Joseph of Arimathea. If I had to guess, although the Bible doesn't tell us specifically, if I had to guess, my assumption would be that when they lowered him down from that crown, either he or Nicodemus removed that crown from his head. But at the very latest, we know that three days later, he no longer bore that crown on his head. But we do see that later he will wear another. In Revelation 19, verses 11 through 12, we read about a day when Jesus will return. And there we read, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Now, you might be looking at that and saying, well, that's a weird word. I don't really know what that means. That's just a fancy old-fashioned term for the word crown. On his head are many crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And as you continue reading through Revelation 19, you see that Jesus Christ will come again, and he will bring all of his people to himself, and he will judge his enemies. You see, the crown of thorns is just a foreshadowing of the fact that there are many crowns that will be worn by our king. I think the imagery that is given here is designed to display the fact that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He is the ruler. He is the authority. And this crown of thorns is just a foreshadowing of the conquering king of the universe. So behold your king, crucified, risen, and coming again. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we thank you that Jesus Christ bore the sin of many at the tree. Lord, I thank you for exactly what your word says, that he came to take our curse. Lord, I thank you that the curse of sin that was declared to Adam, that has spread amongst all people, that Jesus willingly accepted that curse. Not only the curse of the thorns, but much more so the curse of death and the curse of sin that came along with it. We pray, Lord, tonight that you would encourage our souls Turn our hearts to Christ that we would see him rightly as Lord of all. Lord, if there is any aspect of our lives where we have not bowed the knee, where we have not turned away from sin, where we have not turned in obedience and humility towards Christ, Lord, I pray that you would change that part of us right now. It's in the precious name of Jesus Christ that we ask these things. Amen.